Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance here. Live from the Kintech studio, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber, with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street, Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center, or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Com. Sarah Sivian from Bleacher Report and the Too Many Men podcast will join us at 1 o'clock, but we have an open segment uh, until then. Some other uh, rum- rumors, rumblings to pass along, Drancer. I mean, I did just see, you know, on the back of our Rasmus Ristolainen conversation, uh, originally report by uh, Anthony DeMarco, NHL Flyers reporter for the fourth period. Uh, Dave Pignota, also from the fourth period, Chiming in with more information says, uh, as for the Canucks on Ristolainen, while nothing seems imminent, I'm told they spoke with Philly this week about their defense. And Philly, I mean, of course, you know, in addition to Ristolainen, Sean Walker, who's a pending unrestricted free agent, Nick Sealer, who's a pending unrestricted free agent as well. So no shortage of defensive options that Philly might be looking to trade. And I think just in general, the Flyers are a really fascinating team, right? Because they have those guys on the back end. You know, we've heard Morgan Frost's name out there, Scott Lawton's name out there potentially, now that they look at the center market and see where it's going. And somebody texted in, why would Philly even want to trade Ristolainen? And, and, you know, don't forget, Danny Briere comes in there as the president uh, or the GM in Philly. And everyone's sense was, you know, they draft Matt Vimichkov that this was going to be a, a long-term project to build the Philadelphia Flyers, to rebuild the Philadelphia Flyers. And I don't think that's changed because they've, they're a good team this year, right? Like, I still think the eye is very much down the road. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to do a scorched earth, trade everything Chicago-style thing, but it's not surprising to me that they might be willing to trade with some of these veteran players on multi-year deals because they're not looking at this year, next year as kind of all-in years. They're still trying to do that build for the future thing, and you know that's something that makes them interesting because it's not just the pending UFAs that they might be willing to deal. You can talk about Aristolainen or a Scott Lawton or something like that as well. Yeah, and, you know, I I mean, the thing is, is, you know, Sean Walker, like, that's a perfect fit. Mm-hmm. Uh, expensive, uh, Probably, I think. Yep. You know, and, and this is where the Tanev factor looms large. Um, you know, I, I saw Elliot Friedman refer to him as the uh, Taylor Swift of trade deadline coverage. Um, I assume that's because he shakes off so many shot blocks <laughs> like they're nothing. Um, but, you know... I, does Sean Walker go for a first round pick? Well, not if Calgary can't get a first for Kristana. Mm. Right? And I think there's some skepticism about whether or not they can. Like I, I think, you know, if the I, I mean, I think if the Canucks agreed that Chris Tanev was worth a first round pick, he'd be a Canuck. Right? So right. Yeah. you know, I, I think there's some skepticism about whether or not the market will really bear that for a defender who with with a Chris Tanev-like scoring profile, right? Well, I also think uh, it's fair to say that if if the Flames have been offered, officially offered a first-round pick for Chris Tanev at this point, I don't think he'd be a Flame anymore. Like, they're, no. they're clearly willing to do their business early. They did it with Elias Lindholm. So I, I don't know if the Canucks are wrong in that uh, in that evaluation of the player. No, we'll see, right? And, and, I mean, I think if the price drops, I think Vancouver will be back in. Yeah. So... You know, uh, to, to me, the Philly def- defense question is interest- an interesting one because it feels like that's not 
the first domino. Now, Ristolainen could be. Maybe mm. there's a team, maybe it's the Canucks, that look at the three years of term and a potential appetite to retain and sniffs that out as a unique opportunity, right? Um, I think I'd have some skepticism, but, you know, I've been skeptical of other moves for defensemen <laughs> that this team has made and they've worked. So, you know, uh, it, it'll be one of those uh, if that's how this goes. But with, with Walker, I really struggle to imagine that he would go before Tanev, mm. right? Unless unless Philly was, like, undercutting that market and, and willing to be like, yeah, Walker for a second, sure. We just want to do um, it, yeah. Yeah, but but doesn't it make more sense to wait? Wait for Tanev uh, to move and then be like, yeah, same price. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Next guy up, same mm-hmm. price. Uh, and then Sealer, I, I mean, it seems like the scuttlebutt is that Sealer is more likely to stay. Uh, so, you know, we'll see. I, I would say, though, that, you know, if I was ranking – Flyers defenseman that I'd love to see the Canucks add. Like I'd, I'd rank Ristolainen in third behind both Walker and Sealer. Yeah, Sealer, as you said, scuttlebutt that he might stay anyways, and he's he's got in some ways he fits the profile because he's big, physical, which we know that the coaching staff likes. He is another, another left shot guy, so it mm-hmm. does seem to me like if they're going to go out and do more than just a pure depth add, that it's probably going to be at least in part to to balance the pairings and get that additional right shot defenseman in. Because like, don't forget, Drancer, <laughs> it's pretty remarkable. We're still at a point here where Tyler Myers is the second best right shot defenseman on this team. And I don't say that as a slight against Tyler Myers. He had a really, really strong season. But it's incredible to think of how long he's been looked at as a major flaw on this roster, how well this team is playing, and to realize he's still what? Their third most important defenseman uh, on this team. Uh, With a bullet. Like, no, no question about it. Everything usage performance like it all points in the same direction scoring yeah. I mean it's uh it's been a really fun resurgence for Tyler Myers and I mean it think, um, I, I do yeah. think though that I'm sure you would love to like if you bring in Tanev it just fits so well right because then you've got you know he slots above Tyler Myers then you feel really good about where Tyler Myers is playing in the lineup right so that's why I agree with you and I know the reporting from Dollywall was uh to what you were saying flames that think they can get a first uh, for Chris Tanev, Canucks don't want to do that, don't want to give up another first after they did it in the Lindholm deal. But to your point, if it becomes a second, well, then all of a sudden that might be uh, a different conversation. And that's why I do think, like, you know, Rick Dalio was saying maybe they're done going after big names. You know, uh, they're not in on Frank Vitrano. You hear them poking around Phil Kessel. So that would be obviously a, a totally, you know, free acquisition beyond the salary you're paying him. I just think the Tanev fit is so perfect for so many reasons that if the price comes down even a little bit, it would not shock me at all if he ends up back in Vancouver. Yeah. One other thing on Phil Kessel is I do feel like if you're adding him in part because you're unsatisfied with your top six, you're like third third forward on two top six lines, mm-hmm. or even if it's just one of them. I mean, how could anyone ever be dissatisfied with Pew Suter? No, it's just not possible. Preposterous. Um, but I mean, my view of it would be you got to take a look at Garland before you Mm. take a swing on an unknown. That's my view of it. I did think, don't you have to see it? I mean, I did think it was interesting. You were laying it out. Why bring in Phil Kessel as a bottom six offensive driver when you have Garland and Niels Hoaglander? One explanation could be if Garland moves up to the top six. And then Phil Kessel slides into that spot. You try to reignite some of that Phil Kessel third line offensive Ugh. driver magic. 
I don't know, man. Look, I'm not saying I'd be, he, I'm not saying I'd be all over that, but I mean that's he one way to answer that question. He can't drive like Garland, man. You know, like maybe I, I'd have more time for bumping Niels Hoaglander up. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and putting Phil Kessel with Lafferty and Di Giuseppe or something on the fourth line. Like that to me makes more sense. Um, just because, you know, we, we know what Phil Kessel is. He's one of the best rush goal scorers of his generation. Um, but he's not Connor Garland. No. You know, this is this. I mean, without doubt. Yeah. He's not Connor Garland in terms of his two way ability. Again, I don't think you bring in Phil Kessel because there's a spot open in the lineup right now. I think you bring him in in case something bad happens in the playoffs. And you're like, uh oh, we need somebody we can throw in the top six who has a history of scoring goals. We just need a credible option. Boom, Phil Kessel, you're in. But he doesn't solve – to me, he doesn't solve a problem that currently exists in the roster. It would only be as injury insurance that it would make sense. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, bless the Canucks for always being in the rumor mill. Like, first off, right? So great. But, but these, uh, the, these, this latest round leaves me very cold. I liked it better when it was like Lindholm or Gensel, Gensel or Lindholm. Yeah. <laughs> and even then I was like, eh, <laughs> that that round was much better than this one. But this I mean, this is where we're going to be. Right. They've already they've already done their high end shopping. And so now inherently you're going to be talking about much less attractive candidates. And oh, for sure. You know, but give me give me the much less attractive candidates like Alexandra Carrier. Right. And. You know what I mean? Like, give me, give me, give me a puck moving defenseman. Give me Jordan Greenway. Like, let's go. Jordan let's... Greenway, I agree. Now, somebody texted in when we were talking about uh, Ristolainen. and please, we don't need any more big defensemen. This this management group and this coaching staff have a type, right? Like, look at who they've brought in. Starting with Susie Zadorov. Look how Myers has been used. They obviously love their big physical defensemen, understandably so. And that does have me wondering, you know, you're bringing up names like Carrier and, you know, Sean Walker from Philly. What's your set? Like, do does the team see those guys as attractive fits, even as depth options? Or is there a commitment to that kind of size factor, which would explain, you know, the interest in uh, in Rasmus Ristolainen as well? Um, I mean, I think size obviously is a desirable trait, but, you know, Chris Tanev's, what, 6'1"? Yeah. You know, and and I think he's be the apple of their eyes. So I don't think it's all about size. I think it's all about ability. And if you get ability in combination with size, that's the best fit. That's the best of both worlds. So, you know, I I wouldn't view it as like disqualifying for for a defender to not be, you know, the sort of tall drink of water that (laughs) this team is collecting. But um, I I certainly think that's an asset. I just have a hard time seeing them going like let's say Nikita Zadorov was out in this scenario I have a hard time seeing them go from Nikita Zadorov in the lineup to five foot ten Sean Walker maybe not maybe they would do it but it, I think it would be a lot easier to talk yourself into Chris Tanev in that scenario right or at least from the coaching yeah. staff's perspective well and I, I'd bring this point up too which is that for all that um for all that we've talked about or or Zadorov has been talked about as like a potential salary matching option and uh, questions about how it's worked out here and on and on. You know, one thing about um, Nikita Zadorov is it's like he's materially better than Rasmus Ristolainen. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, um, don't, don't, 
I think it's important to not get so carried away with the Canucks surplus at LD that you ignore the fact that, you know, whoever you bring in has to be like a very significant material upgrade over third pair right side Ian Cole or third pair left side Nikita Zadorov. And that's actually a pretty high bar. Like, I don't think Nick Sealer jumps over it. You know, Sean Walker probably does, but not easily. Right. Like that's if you were to tell me you disagreed, I, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't agree with you, but like I'd at least understand the argument. Zadorov's track record uh, of health, right, uh, of strong two-way play, um, the the rarity of his profile, like the fact that he's the toughest guy on this team, period. You know, like all of that matters to me. Um, so I, I sort of, uh, again, when you're adding a defender, I think it, it, these, these players are going to have to leap over a really high bar to be um, – value added to where this Canucks roster sits at the moment, which is why, you know, for me anyway, I, I'd rather see them use the cap space to get a Brandstrom type, mm. right? Like a, like something different for the mix uh, as opposed to, you know, something like, like you're, you're, you're multiple injuries away in my view from not having like a reliable physical defenseman in, uh, you know, at just about every spot outside your top pair in the lineup, especially with how Juleson's played this year, right? Yep. So to me, it would be like finding insurance for that top pair if they're going to tweak the blue line. Like, unless you're getting a Tanev type that, you know, you, you there's no question they're an upgrade, I really do think you're better off focusing on a puck mover and using the rest of your resources to shore up PK or size up front. Well, and that's why when the Zadorov stuff started, I didn't interpret it as we have an issue with Sidorov and we want to fix that, right? It would only make sense to me, as you say, if you're getting a clear talent upgrade and that's the price that you have to pay. But it's not mm. it's not like an addition by subtraction thing or, a, you know, we don't really like the player. I think it's just if there's a special opportunity to go and get a player like Chris Tanev, and then, as you said, you know, you bump Ian Cole or Mike the third pair and you feel really good about your defense when everyone's healthy, when Carson's in the lineup, you know, maybe you have to pay the price of Zadorov to go do it. But it's not as if you're like, ah, I, we don't like Zadorov in the lineup. You know what I mean? I think they still really like uh, a lot of those things he he brings, including his physicality uh, and his toughness. Man, we brought up Tyler Myers, and people are texting it in. Anybody's better than Myers. Myers makes so many mistakes. Juleson is way better. I don't know. I, I don't know what to say. Like, Rick, the coaching staff is playing the guy. He's playing really well. The team is winning. Can we get over it? Can we get over the $6 million AAV that he's making and recognize that he's playing really well? What's it going to take for Tyler Myers to oh. get some respect in this city? I wasn't uh, I wasn't on side with that take when he wasn't playing well, so <laughs> you can guess how I feel about it now. Now that he is playing really well. <laughs> but I don't know. Like, I mean, he's how many how many times does he have to play like 20 plus minutes in a game and do really well for people to uh, to recognize that he's helping this team, that they're not going to get better yeah. by jettisoning him from the lineup? It's bizarre. The uh, the um, Tyler Myers pile on is uncalled for. And in a more structured environment, he can play helpful winning hockey, I think was like one of my only October takes that aged that really well. This that year. stands up. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Good for you. Thanks, man. Um, I got one right. (laughs) Somebody texted in, could the Canucks sell any of their UFAs in hopes uh, to upgrade them in another move? I mean, that's kind of what we would be talking about with Zadorov, right? Because don't don't forget here, like Zadorov would have value around the league. If you decided to make him available, all of a sudden he's one of the more interesting UFA defensemen that's on the market ahead of the deadlines. So that does have to factor in 
to any conversation that you, you know you're having about trading Zadorov is you'd get something back uh, for him ahead of the deadline. Do you think you'd get more than the Canucks gave up for him? A so few months what ago? did they trade? I a, say yes. A third and a fifth. A third and a fifth. I, I think say you yes. would. Like I think I think so too. Frankly, like, couldn't you get a second round pick for Nikita Zadorov? I think so. I think you absolutely could. So I think that's uh, especially part of the discussion. Especially because he's less expensive now. Yeah, it's a good point, right? I mean, it, like uh, you know, he's been paid a sal- his he's been paid an extra hundred and five days worth of salary, so he's less expensive. Um, yeah, I mean, and again, it's just such a rare piece, which is why ultimately, like, I'm pretty sure they shouldn't trade Zadorov. He's really good. Yeah, just like well, they'll probably keep him and just do the depth yeah. defenseman ad thing. Yeah, again, my only asterisk to that is unless Chris Tanev uh, does become available for a price that they like and you know up uh, for example a second round pick which they don't have this year but maybe you get one and uh, and you can work something out well uh, for Chris or, or next year or next year second yep. I mean the thing about dealing a next year first is that makes me queasy given the Canucks you know shooting clip uh the health mm-hmm. of their roster how much turnover the they've got you know and and by the way I think it would make them queasy like I don't think they'd I don't think they'd willy-nilly do that even though I I don't think they'd um be like dogmatically opposed to the idea either. Um, but I think there's an understanding of the risk you take dealing early. Um, they definitely didn't want to do a 2025 first in the Calgary deal. Like that was absolutely something that was asked for. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I, but, but trading a 2025 second, um, you know, that's a different proposition because you're somewhat protected. The, the worst pick you can surrender is pick 33. It's a valuable asset. Don't get me wrong, but it's not, you know, and that's like five a pick. That's a hyper nightmare scenario, right? That you're surrendering. Yeah, that. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and 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 not one that I think's you know a fat part of the bell curve. No, um, the 2025 first to me is kind of in the Lakaramaki Valander tier, where it's not that it should be off the table completely, because realistically nothing should be off the table. But you better be sure that it's really moving the needle, and probably for multiple years, if you're making that available. I don't see the rental that the Canucks could feasibly acquire that would make sense to put the 2025 first on the table. Because as you said, there's so much risk inherent to that. When you look at all of the work they're going to have to do this off season, you know, forget even about the sustainability of, of this team's performance. We have no idea what the team is going to look like going into next year. Right. And if you, if you trade that pick, all of a sudden there's a ton of pressure on you to really, really nail uh, what you're doing in the summer to set that team up for success. So again, I wouldn't take it off the table, right? If if one of those unique opportunities that we've talked about comes up and it is somebody who has a little bit of term, then okay, maybe you think about it as tough a pill as it would be to swallow. But to me, it's in that tier where it has to be a real, real needle moving piece. And you probably need it to be more than just this year too. Yeah. I mean, just, I think you're right to put it in the tier with those two guys. Yeah. You know, I think that's like fundamentally right. Um, the risk on all three, like dealing all three, I think is, is so high. Um, with, with honestly the risk for me, like if I was to tier it, right, it would be like LeCaramacchi one, the, the pick second and Valander third, just in terms of like the star upside involved, right? The potential that what you trade becomes, you know, not just like a good player, but a great player, the sort of thing that you're like really regretting a couple of years down the line. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. That's the right tier. And if you're doing it, you absolutely, like it can't be, 
it can't be a one and done. It no. can't be a bolster your chances for this year. Although I'm all for that. It's uh, it's the longer term fit that you have that has to sort of govern the, those sorts of expenditures. This text comes in. So your take for the defense is to get older. Myers, 35. Cole, 35. Tanev, 35. You'll have to rebuild the defense again in a year. They're going to have to do that anyway. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's baked that anyway. in. And that's fine. Like, there's there's as much as that prevents challenges, there's also opportunities there. And you shouldn't be shy away, shy from that. And, like, this is what comes from being a really good team is you go into the summer with UFAs because you keep them around to help you win in the playoffs. That's fine. That's just part and parcel of being – the type of team the Canucks are this year and having this type of season, you can't let that stop you from acquiring other nope. players, right? And if anything, I like the fact that they swapped a player, an underperforming player who was under contract for next year for a pending UFA in Lindholm, there's value to that because it opens up all sorts of flexibility. And when you look at this management group in particular, I think we should be thrilled that they have that much flexibility going into the summer, right? Given what they were able to do, uh, with that, with the limited, the very limited salary cap space they had to work with uh, this past summer, to me, the UFA thing, it, it's not something to shy away from. Like, that's where you are now, that you're that type of team. You have to deal with that, but bet on yourself. Bet on yourself to be able to find that value in the open market. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I don't it's know. Nice like, we're hear. up against it. I was, I was thinking about, I was thinking about picking uh, semantically. Like, would you say they were really limited cap space wise after the OEL buyout? I mean, fairly. <laughs> yeah. What do they have to play with? Like eight million? No, I'll pl- but once they also didn't tender bear a QO, it was like ten million. All right. Combined. Well, s- s- they're gonna have like what thirty five million? Yeah, that's that's flexibility. That ten is million is real. Ten million is two though. Okay. They're yeah. going to have significantly more flexibility. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. But although significantly more um, question marks too, right? A hundred percent, right? There's, I it's, mean, it's challenges you might be, you might be in a pretty similar, you might be in a pretty similar spot once 40 and, and, uh, and Heronic get done. Yeah. Are done. Well, yeah. that's fine. You can, uh, you, you'll deal with that. <laughs> Is it? It's a good problem to have if it comes to that. I if guess. You get those guys, uh, get those guys locked up long term all right we will take a break as you said we're up against it uh dom's not here so i'm gonna make sure to get out on time just to really rub it in his face that i can do it whenever (laughs) i want sarah sivian from bleacher report we'll talk about the bruins uh, and everything else happening around the nhl that's coming up next here on canucks talk sportsnet 650 Welcome back to Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance here. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the worksite. Find them together online at DLEAMC.com. We are live from the Kintech studio. Kintech, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, powered by thousands of five-star Google reviews. Sore feet. What are you waiting for? Also, the hotline is brought to you by Dispatch Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning. The first call, the only call, and now we go to the Dispatch Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning hotline where we are joined uh, from Bleacher Report and also part of the Too Many Men podcast. She is Sarah Sivian. Sarah, thank you for making time for us today. How are you? Of course. Another day in paradise. How are you guys? 
Yeah, I feel the same way. Uh, we're doing well. <laughs> I'm I'm hyped for this game tonight. I mean, there's always a lot of attention on the Canucks and the Bruins in Vancouver because, of course, we have very long memories here and we still love to talk and relitigate the 2011 Stanley Cup final. But it feels legitimately really special this time because it is the top two uh, teams in the NHL going at it. Are, are you excited for this one as well? Yeah, 2011 calls, and they want their standings back. Um, this is going to be super exciting. <laughs> Love to see it. How, I'm pumped. How angry do you think the Bruins are going to be? Not because it's the Canucks, but because they lost to the Flames on home ice. And I know, you know, Marshawn was in uh, in an incident with Fosbacil, and I know that uh, uh, that J- Jim Montgomery was not pleased with his team either. I know. Um, It's always interesting, especially for, like, the best teams in the league coming back after break, right? Like, it's a little bit of maybe cockiness, a little bit of rustiness, and now you've got another center out. So it's going to be – I mean, it's a statement no matter what, especially when the top team in the West is playing the top team in the East with history like this too. But it's going to be really, really important for the Bruins to win this one. Sarah, how do the Bruins keep doing it? What a question, right? I, <laughs> you think Honestly. It's not going to happen. And then you got two top centers that have been with the team for decades retiring, and then they just keep – I mean, short answer, it's Olmark and Swayman. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. kind of like goaltending, being that consistent with two elite goaltenders is just something crazy. Then you've got – I don't think anybody talks about David Pasternak as much as they should. I mean, last time I checked, he was number three – in goals but had more points than number one and two then he was number three in points and had more goals than number one and two so it's like he's an elite sniper no matter who is his center and it's been great to see something other teams can or should steal from the net um i think yeah like get oh you've seen swayman's comments about arbitration i mean this isn't a situation that can last forever because obviously Mm -hmm. he's deserved more money and he wasn't pleased with the way that went down but I guess get lucky with a with a homegrown goalie kind of in arbitration in the first place and it's really hard with goaltending right because you develop all these hyped up goaltenders that you think are going to be the next guy and they're not and then you get kind of I mean Swayman was always supposed to be good but like you just didn't think this soon with I know. Then you got Allmark too, where he comes from Buffalo and ha- and didn't have his best seasons. I guess hire a really good goalie coach and listen to him. <laughs> yeah, good advice. Uh, and I've worked for the Canucks, to be fair, here with Ian Clark uh, in Vancouver. And you know, just thinking about this Bruins sustained run of excellence, it, one of the things that stands out to me is I look across sports, right? And obviously, you know, in Boston, you had the Brady Belichick area uh, era with the Pats and all that winning. You know, I think of. Popovich and Duncan with the Spurs in the NBA but you look at that and like when one of those pieces has departed the winning has stopped right Brady goes elsewhere Belichick loses a little bit of the magic you know Popovich still in San Antonio but they're not exactly the same team they used to be the thing that stands out with the Bruins is I mean you've had a succession of coaches you know Chara left now Bergeron has left there's been a lot more turnover than we think about and yet they just keep doing it and you know Jim Montgomery specifically takes over uh, after Bruce Cassidy leaves what role has he played in this kind of continuation of the winning machine for the Bruins I think he there's a humility to it I think and there's also 
a recognition of, I, I think the players past, like Chara, Bergeron, et cetera, they hang around the rink and they pass on kind of who they are and what it means to be a Bruin to everyone. I know that um, there's been times where Montgomery gave the locker room speech to someone like um, Felino, and he's been really good about kind of respecting I don't know, like it's an age-old debate about do you give the players too much power or not, but it's like when you know there's a history here of kind of a winning vibe, you do loosen up the reins a little bit and you don't try to be the hero. And I think they wanted to play. I mean, it's a great comeback story that every player wanted to play with. Then you think about somebody like Jake DeBrusque who felt kind of slighted in the past and this coach comes in and has nothing but respect for him Mm. at the same time like expects him to work hard but lets him have a longer leash when it comes to making a mistake and he's worked harder to come back from a mistake and put more effort in so it's a fine line but Montgomery walks it well you know Last year, obviously, they're having the dream regular season, and I think there was a sense of uh, this could be kind of the Bruins' version of the last dance with Bergeron and Krejci, and I think that fueled their desire to really make a splash at the deadline. Obviously, we know how it ends up working out against the Panthers in the first round. How much does that experience impact and influence what they're going to do at the trade deadline this year? Yeah, I guess we'll see, right? I mean, it's such an interesting conversation here in Boston right now because it's like, we saw what happened last year, so it's really hard to – it was an objectively one of the best teams in NHL history, and this happens in the playoffs. So it's kind of like – it's a good case study to see, okay, now there's, I guess, a few more losses, some more adversity, if you will. But, like, I guess it's going to be a good case study to see, like, okay, how much does the regular season truly impact the playoffs? But to your point about the trade deadline – the Bruins, I was thinking about your prior question, just like what has worked for the Bruins. They haven't had good prospects because they keep trading away yeah. their first at the deadline. And whether it works or not, it's like it has been more effective than not in most of their playoff run situations. So I feel like it's kind of like what Vegas has done to the extreme, where like you go out and get the already good players. It's The Bruins do like a mini version of that. And that's, I, I can expect them to do, especially with, center depth even more lacking than it was a week ago now they're gonna have to go get a center yeah the Bruins also use the deadline to like buy long term right I mean you think about Coyle uh Hampus Lindholm uh was that last year or the year before the year before um you know they've they've sort of brought in pieces that weren't rentals but uh were sort of longer term fits and and of course it's been reported uh, that they were in on Elias Lindholm, who will play his second yeah. game for the Canucks tonight, but wanted to talk extension. Um, with with sort of that paradigm in mind, uh, do you think if the Bruins buy again at the deadline here, it might be more focused on that type of deal that we've seen them do in the past as opposed to playing in the rental market? Yeah, I I definitely think so, especially because you look at... I mean, I keep saying centered up, centered up, centered up, but even your mm. first and second line centers, it's really like they're going to need to fill that up in ways that they can. Yeah, I think we dropped uh, Sarah there, but we will get her back on the line momentarily and uh, continue our conversation. Sarah Sivian from Bleacher Report and the Too Many Men podcast joining us, weighing in uh, on the uh, Bruins' continued success and 
Yeah, you had pretty much the same question that I was going to ask Sarah Drancer, which is just like, how do the Bruins keep getting away with it? What is in the water there <laughs> that allows them to just continually be successful uh, despite all of this turnover uh, that we it's see actually over deeply and over annoying. and over again? Yeah, no, it's just wild. And like, you're 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 so we're so used to seeing teams with more stability have that, but somehow they keep doing it. Sarah, we got you back. Sorry, uh, we we lost you in the middle of your last answer there. Yes, I'm on my dad's phone, and I think his Bluetooth connected. He's probably going to be so embarrassed, but we're back. <laughs> sorry. All right, don't worry about it. Um, sorry, Drance, tear up for the for the question again. Yeah, the um, question I was asking was, you know, just basically, will the Bruins look to do the long term buy thing as opposed to playing in the rental market if they do make a move here uh, ahead of the deadline? Yeah, I, yeah, I absolutely think. I mean, that's their their style it has to be when you think about the lack of center depth. And I know I keep saying that, but it is, it's even gotten worse than it was headed into the all-star break and they don't have anything cooking for centers in the prospects right now. So, and you see the way Pasternak's playing and you have Allmark and Swayman again, it is just like, I know we really like put that narrative, like ran it under the ground last year with the Cinderella run, but I don't know. Like, they did have a sense of urgency, but I don't know if anyone thought on the team that they were going to be completely done after Bergeron and Kregi. But the problem is that Bergeron and Kregi have had, for years, like, really team-discounted deals. So it's, like, really challenging to find top two centers with the Mm. same type of deals that are that good again. But I don't know. Like, I'm not going to count out Sweeney at this point, considering all he's done. Does Noah Hannafin make sense as a, a potential of that kind of same move where he's a pending UFA, but you acquire him with uh, with an eye to signing for the future? I mean, not, obviously doesn't fit the center depth uh, need that the team has, but we hear, you know, obviously he's from Boston, played college hockey there. How likely do you think that could be? I know. The Bruins are a sucker for that. And Lindholm <laughs> is kind of having a, a down year. I mean, last year was absolutely insane from him, but it's, he's not having the best year. I can see it, but... Hannafin's one of those things where it really is like he's just constantly on the trade block and they constantly talk about him that it kind of clouds our judgment. It's like, oh, he becomes a hot commodity because always are talking about him, but it's like, does he really add that much value to a team with his contract? Like, I don't know. Um, you know, it's not just Boston that's a sucker for the hometown story, I can assure you. We got, we got texts in today saying what the Canucks really need this year is Milan Lucic. Bring him home. Bring him home. So it's it's definitely a thing here. <laughs> it's definitely a thing here uh, as well. Speaking of the Canucks, you know, I think we've been following the team obviously really closely day to day here. And it took us a little while. It took a little while to sink in like, oh, this is real. The team is actually good. They have a chance to win the division. They're in the driver's seat to win the division. They're going to go to the playoffs. They have a chance to make noise in the playoffs. How long did it take for you to kind of get on board with what the Canucks were doing this year? I know. I don't want to be like I was there before everybody else. <laughs> go for it. Go for it. The, the vibes were so good this year. Maybe like 10 games in. I don't know. It, it's just been – such dominance and I understand like waiting for the other foot to drop especially with this team when it's been like historic you win 10 you lose 10 and then it's like here we go again Mm -hmm. when did that change I I think it just I I think Brock Besser and and the best players like they were there was nothing to fluke about it was like all the pieces that you thought 
would have, could have, should have made an impact to the Canucks all these years. It was like all the people that were supposed to and that we know could actually were. It wasn't like some random guy coming up and doing it all. It was like a really big team effort. And then, of course, the goaltending. It's like when you have consistent goaltending, that really convinces me that the team's going to be good. Hot take, I know. Sarah, just thinking about Marchand, and I know it's bad radio in Vancouver to ever praise this guy, (laughs) but, you know, it's pretty amazing that he's had this career arc, you know, from sort of this, like, petulant, widely loathed, lightning rod, villain, heel-type player, and now it feels like he's an elder statesman for this Bruins team. He's really become, like, one of the most consistent top five two-way wingers in hockey year after year and feels like he's a big part of sort of the continuity that this Bruins team has been able to rely on in staying uh, among the elite teams in this league, even without Bergeron. Um, What a story for this guy. I know. The way I explain it, or to myself and to other people, is that he will always play like he's fighting for a role on the fourth line. Like, he started out in the AHL, and he was somebody that wasn't really expected, especially in his era with how short he is. Like, he was never expected to be this kind of guy. So when he has that edge to him that does annoy everybody as it should, like, it's because he's playing like a fringe player, even though he's become an elite winger. And I think... It's not lost on me that this season he becomes a captain. It's also he's on pace to have a goal career record like this year. It's crazy, but I I remember opening night when he became captain. I think it's the first time I've ever seen him like genuinely nervous. You could tell like he really took on like the weight and the gravity of the situation. And it was something that he took more seriously than anything he's ever taken in his life. And in terms of, I mean, Boston's done this thing occasionally this year where usually we'll see Coyle with Pasternak and, uh, and Marchand, but sometimes we'll sort of see Zaka um, with, like, Pasternak. We'll see, like, different looks in terms of the top six. Um, do you know what the Bruins are doing tonight lineup-wise, and, and why do they change that up based on certain matchups? The checkmates. Well, now that um, Matthew is out for five months, I really don't know what they're going to do with the centers. But um, I, it, it really is great. Sometimes Montgomery, like he is really good at mid-game adjustment. So you might see like several iterations of the team right now, especially after a center injury. So I I do like the checkmates. Um, I like the Zaka Pasternak connection, but it really is a testament to Montgomery that he gets a vibe to the team and he isn't afraid to move people around. And it's a testament, obviously, to how elite Pasternak and Marchand are, that they can kind of play with, not whoever, it's like Charlie Quayle is having a great season and Zaka is always supposed to be really good, but I think he's fully blossoming here in more of a Bergeron role than somebody who's expected to get all these points. So I, I do think the natural order of things and you'd see in a playoff is like first line Zaka just because of the, the two way game. 
Sarah, really appreciate the time today. Uh, you're amped for the game tonight. We're amped. Should be a good one. Hopefully it has some of that uh, throwback 2011 energy to it. It better. Like The people are craving it. <laughs> Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. Thanks for doing this, Sarah. We'll talk again soon. Thanks so much. See ya. That is Sarah Sivian uh, from Bleacher Report and the Too Many Men. See, it's not just people in Vancouver who are hyped. She's she's in Boston. She's hyped for the 2011 uh, rematch as well tonight between the Bruins and the Canucks. The Bruins, I mean, we're joking about, you know, how on earth do they keep doing this? And she's talking like first line Pavel Zaka could be a, a real possibility going into the playoffs. And yet they're the second best team in the NHL. Somebody texted in uh, yesterday towards the very, very end of our show, I think just as we were signing off about the Bruins PDO and how you never hear about them being quote PDO merchants, but it's actually a fair point because the underlying profile for the Bruins this year has been fairly soft. I think you'd agree. And yet it just doesn't seem as surprising when a team with the track record of success as the Bruins have, you know, finds a way to keep quote unquote unsustainably winning games. So I think we tend to kind of overlook it, but I do think there is, you know, beyond just looking at them on paper and saying, boy, I don't know about Charlie Coyle and Pavel Zaka as your top two centers. I think there are reasons in their actual record or, or like, you know, statistical performance to be a little skeptical of this team too. Yeah, have we ne- have we never brought that up? We we brought it up. I, think, I feel like, like I've brought that up a few times. We brought it up like early in the year. But like, here's the thing though: is like, we have the Canucks PDO hasn't been a topic of conversation since like November, really, like a major topic of conversation. It's it comes up and people joke about it, but there's been no like all oh, of this team are actually frauds discourse since like at least November. Yeah, you're right. You know what but I mean? It, it was it was so short lived because even the Vancouver like analytics commentators were like, "No, nah, there's more going on here. That's not. Ju- it's not just that." Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, I, I mean, I still expect them to regress in certain ways. Uh, I also think they've played so much better as a team in terms of their two way game that they've got the you know ability to overcome it. Like to to continue to get pretty good results maybe even elite results with a shooting percentage that's more like 10 yeah yeah like 10 even even eight percent as opposed to the 13 plus percent that they've been trucking along with so you know i i look i i think the fact is is that when we've talked about the atlantic when we've sized up this division this bruins division all year like i've been i've been loading up on panthers shares and shorting bruins shares all year and it's for the exact same reason, right? Like it's it's that ultimately I think there's a little too much goalie mm. in, in Boston's profile. And while I buy their goaltending, I like both guys. Like at the end of the day, you know, the problem with having an edge in net is over a seven-game sample. Like do you? <laughs> you know, do you? Yeah. How many times do we see the lesser name outperform the bigger name over the course of a single playoff series? Like literally – multiple times a year now I mean the lucky thing about the Bruins is they're not running the risk of overworking their their hot goalie you know their number one goalie going into the playoffs totally. because they have the really solid tandem so they can they can manage their risk that way a little bit but yeah I mean it's it's funny because again I think people just see them at the top of the standings and they're like yep the Bruins they're at it again you look at the roster and it's filled with like outside of Marshawn and Pasternak it's all the forward group is all players I like if they were like one or two roles below where they are on the team right now. You know what I mean? They're all like good players. Like, oh yeah, I can see how that guy would help a winning team if he was like drop down a line. 
And it's just, I think that catches up to you at that point, right? Where you have so many guys who, hey, it's great that the coaching staff has got them playing a little bit above their heads. And, you know, wow, I didn't think it would work, but he's actually, you know, risen to the opportunity and is playing well there. I think that catches up to you at a certain point when you have that many stacked on top of each other like the Bruins do. Yeah, I mean, I I just think they're one top-line center short. But that's For a sure. pretty significant place that's, to be that's short. A really, that's a really big problem. Center's not important, yeah. is it? Center is very important. Oh, and, okay. And, yeah, and they're one, they're one top-line center short. That would be how I'd, like, caption – you know, my, my basic view of, of where this team's at and, and my concerns about it. By the way, I enjoyed that uh, in our conversation with Sarah, you decided you haven't given Canucks fans enough to be angry with you about recently. So you just said, let's talk about how great Brad Marchand is. <laughs> you, I mean, can it's, you tell me about why he's so awesome? It's amazing. Like, honestly, it. I mean, I always had a little more time for Brad Marchand, I think, than most in the market, um, you know. But, like, when was the last time Brad Marchand was suspended? Yeah, I don't know off the top of my head. You know, like, Brad, like I can't even think of the last time Brad Marchand was involved in, like, a really dirty hit. You know, like, I, I, like very seriously, this guy's completely redesigned who he is in this league. And, you know, when a guy hangs around for as long as he has and has as much success as he's had, right, make, like, this isn't just a pest. This guy's an elite winger in his own right. I, I mean, you know, I, I'll never like I'll never actually forgive him for the Sallow Lowbridge, but I, I mean, I do think it's an amazing story that he's become what he's become over the course of his NHL career. By the way, uh, three putt Shane sent in an even more incendiary idea than uh, your praise of Brad Marchand. Speaking of the Bruins missing that top end center, uh, three putt Shane says Pedersen would be a good fit for Boston. Could you imagine? LOL. So that's just some some red meat for everyone to chew on and imagine uh, from three-putt no. Shane in the inbox. No, <laughs> I, I simply refuse. I will not imagine burn, burn, that. Burn, burn that text with fire, please. <laughs> Thank you. I told him. I was like, I'm going to get in trouble for reading this on air, but I'm going to do it anyways. That wasn't me. That was three-putt Shane. Direct all your ire for putting that out in the universe to three-putt Shane in the Dunbar Lumber text line. Um, before we go to break here, it is time for the Abbotsford Farm Report, brought to you by Homes by David L. Young of Dexter Realty. Here, there, everywhere. Visit Homes by David L. Young. Dot com. Uh, Abby Canucks have a couple of games this weekend on the road in Colorado, Friday and Saturday against the Colorado Eagles. Their last couple of games uh, before they have a week off, they'll be at home next Saturday, February 17th, Monday, February 19th in Abbotsford hosting the Calgary Wranglers. And these are important games. The AHL playoff format is incredibly, incredibly complicated, but the uh, Abbotsford Canucks, of course, play in the Pacific Division. If they finish in the top four of the Pacific, they'll not only be in the playoffs, but they'll have home ice in the uh, that first kind of mini round of the playoffs, you know, where you have a chance to win both games at home. And right now, they are number four, Colorado right behind them in fifth. So important games for the Abbotsford Canucks to try to lock down that home ice advantage spot uh, in the playoffs. And of course, a chance for Arshdeep Baines coming off his AHL All-Star Game MVP performance to get back on the ice with with his team. He's still at a point per game, 40 points in 40 games. Linus Carlson is back down with the club. By the way, I mean, I think Linus Carlson has become most notable for, you know, just being up and down and being kind of that depth option around the team. 
He's been really, really productive this year in the AHL when he's played. He's still the team's second-leading scorer, despite missing a bunch of games, coming up and sitting around uh, practicing with the big team. He has 27 points in 30 games. And another player I wanted to highlight quickly that we don't talk about very much, Max Sasson, who, of course, was an NCAA free agent last year for the Vancouver Canucks. He's 23, so not super, super young for the AHL, but he's having a, a good transition to his pro career, 26 points in 35 games for Max Sasson uh, at the center position. So that's what's going on with Abby. Again, a pair of games this week on the road against the Colorado Eagles. They're back home next Saturday, February 17th, hosting the Calgary Wranglers. Those are big games too because Calgary's in third place. So lots of big games with playoff seeding at stake for the Abby Canucks coming up here in the next little bit. That is the Abbotsford Farm Report Brought to you by Homes by David L. Young of Dexter Realty. Here, there, everywhere. Visit Homes by David L. Young.com. Final segment of the show coming up here on a Canucks game day. We will hear from Rick Tockett. Uh, that's coming up next year on Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Trance here on a Canucks game day, just a few hours, less than a few hours from puck drop in Boston, which means uh, it's Canucks Central. Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah, who will be following us on the air immediately after our show. We are live from the Kintech studio. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Uh, let's hear from Canucks head coach, as mentioned, uh, game day against the Boston Bruins. Here was Rick Tockett speaking to the media earlier today in Boston. Coach, you were happy with the effort. What do you need to see from the group tonight to continue that? Well, just stay, you know, stay on the plan. You know, um, there's a different game. You know, the, we're, we just play a different way. And you're, you're playing a team that's, a, I think, for the last 10 years, a model franchise in the sense that they're very consistent what they do. Very rarely you catch them on a bad night. So, um, you know, we're expecting a, a tough game tonight. What have you keyed in on in terms of being most important to protect against versus Boston? Well, I think if you make critical mistakes, they make you pay. Um, they're they're very good pressure. Uh, hockey IQ is outstanding. Obviously, they're well coached. But uh, you know, I think over the last ten years, if you look at their leadership group, it's probably one of the best leadership groups I think in hockey. You know, I think it started from Chara and obviously Bergeron, and, and they passed it down to Marchand. Passed it. like so. You're getting a you know a very smart team. Um, so we got to make sure that we you know we play to our ability with it when it comes to smarts too. You know. Sure. Just, you know, the intensity is continuing to rise. Do you get excited for games like these? I love these type of games. You know, it's uh, you always want to be involved in this as a coach or a player. You know, you want to you, you want to go against the, one of the best. And uh, this is going to be a fun game to coach. And, uh, and I hope the players will be excited about playing this type of hockey. You did say once that uh, you 
not crazy about your team always looking at the standings? Is this a game where you'd like them to look at the standings? I mean, I don't know. I I, I look at the game just as, hey, you know, this is one of the top teams, and you know, we're one of the top teams right now. And uh, so I look at it as 60-minute hockey. My, the standings. I mean, yeah, you always glance at it, but it's not it's not a critical thing for me when I look at it, to be honest with you. But but we know Boston's a good hockey team. What's your level of awareness of? Canucks Bruins history and what this game might mean in the market. Tonight. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. I've heard it. I've heard it over the last year, bits and pieces, from you guys. <laughs> How did uh, Lindholm fit in in your opinion? Well, obviously we just got him. Just you know, for me, like I know everybody's talking about the power play goals, but there was three critical. I shouldn't say critical, but three plays that he did something really well. Um, yeah. Like it was, you know, I, I've been overusing the hockey word hockey IQ, but he's he's really smart. So. Uh, he did a couple of smart moves for us to, to preserve the 3-2 win. Lineup, same. Same. Demko. Demko, yeah. And is there a balance as you're being asked uh, these questions? I know you focused yeah. a little bit earlier on the week about uh, the attention, the publicity that your club's yeah. now getting. Is there a balance between sticking with that sort of day by day mindset that's worked for you with also enjoying the moment? with yeah. sort of the games like this that are, you know are coming over the next few months. Yeah, we've talked about it. There's a sweet spot there. Um, you know, the really good teams know how to stay even keel. Um, I, you know, I don't, you know, I told the players, don't buy into the hype. Like, just, you know, just buy into what's in, in, our, in our thought process in the room. You know, there's so many games left. There's so many more tests to be. Um, yeah, it's good to have a swagger. It's good to enjoy it. But I think it's important that... You know, that's our mantra, you know, the next day. The next day you hear JT say, it, you know, Patty, like it goes down the list. They're saying it. It makes me feel comfortable. But, you know, like I said, <clears throat> you know, but you got to enjoy it too. I mean, you can't just, you know, put your head down and just, you know, you got to enjoy the moment. But there's a there's a reason why these type of guys in Vegas winning last year, you know, they win hockey games. I, I don't see them cheering too much. I mean, they're just, you know, one to the next city. You know, that's kind of what we're, we're trying to find that mentality. That is Canucks head coach Rick Tockett addressing the media before that game in Boston. And some interesting commentary in there from Rick Tockett, I think striking on, you know, your question towards the end there, right? Not pretending, not trying to pretend that you're not one of the best teams in the league, right? That you're not leading the NHL 50 games into the season in February, where you can start to kind of see the finish line a little bit. But finding that balance between embracing it, as he said, hey, it can be good to have swagger, it can be good to enjoy it, while maintaining that professionalism, that focus, and he also kind of counteract or counters that with, you know, look at Vegas. They're not celebrating that much when they were in a regular season game because they know what the real prize is. And, uh, you know, I agree. And I think that's going to be like Rick Tockett has navigated so many challenges with this Canucks team already. And this is going to be another one uh, for the final 30 plus games of the season here is striking that balance between embracing your status as a contender, as one of the top teams in the league without getting carried away, without buying into that hype. Well, especially because this is uncharted territory for this group, yep. right? I mean, you know, they probably should have had a stretch run. Like, if not for the pandemic, they would have had a stretch run, uh, although they weren't, like, out ahead of their division with a cushion <laughs> in <laughs> 2019. But, you know, aside from that, aside from the bubble, right, like, this is – just an area where they haven't been before and and this is what happens in hockey like the conversation nationally around the Canucks is naturally going to take on like a, a bit of uncertainty right as as people start like handicapping their Stanley Cup chances um 
and and not I don't mean Vegas in terms of handicapping, but like as it becomes a, the a talking point. Yeah. yeah, the commentary and sizing up, you know, what it will look like for them in a playoff series, the round one. Like, well, they, you know, one thing one thing is they haven't been there before. Mm-hmm. Like, we haven't seen this group handle it before. I don't have any reason to believe that they'll struggle to handle it necessarily, um, but we haven't seen it, mm-hmm. and so you know, I, I just I'm I was curious to know. Tockett's kind of view of balancing that, you know, I really read a lot into his, like, we're getting a lot of publicity now. We have to stay humble. Like, you could tell in Carolina as he's getting these, like, high-stakes questions kind of thrown at him, right, that he's beginning to – he's still it. He's still honest. Yeah. But, but he's beginning to couch superlatives a little bit, you know, which, which to me is like a, a flashing light, like just an indicator that it's something he's – I don't want to say concerned about, but aware of. Well, there's that old kind of coaching cliche, right? Where it's like you are sometimes you're kindest to your players when they're struggling and, and you're harshest yes. on them when when things are going really, really well because you're so obsessed with avoiding those peaks and valleys, avoiding that roller coaster. You don't want to exacerbate the emotions one way. You always want to be kind of pulling them back to that equilibrium. And it is a fine balance because, as you said, like as I was saying, you can't pretend you're not one of the best teams in the league. You have to acknowledge it. You have to be willing uh, to embrace that and what it comes with. But it is a very fine line. And, you know, your point about how people are going to evaluate this Canucks team and one of the big focuses as we get close to the playoffs is the fact that they have not been in this situation before, really in the playoffs, in a typical playoffs, uh, let alone, you know, going in with real expectations, being one of the top teams in your conference, loading up uh, at the deadline. And that is one of the fascinating qualities of this Canucks season and I know like I felt it as someone covering the team I've seen people text in about it it feels like this team has skipped a bunch of the traditional steps right where it's like well we didn't get like the warm-up playoff run where it's like hey we made it to the playoffs we weren't really expected to but we're the eighth seed and ah we we gave the number one seed a decent showing but now we're out and next thing thing next year we're going to do even better and you know I feel like a lot of times the teams that Talkett is talking about, like Vegas, and I know they had that miracle run until the Stanley Cup final in their first year, but they acquire that maturity by virtue of having been through the cycle year after year after year, mm-hmm. right? And then it's like, okay, that's where we're getting this focus, whereas the Canucks have just kind of gone from really, really struggling, tons of drama around the team, to boom, we're one of the best teams in the league. And, you know, I've seen – we've had fans text in – at various points this year, like when I was arguing, hey, they might be prepared, they they maybe should be prepared to go all in. People saying, like, come on, what are you talking about? Nobody goes from completely outside of the playoffs to challenging for a Stanley Cup in year one. But I don't think that's an ironclad rule. And so many things have been unique and different about this Canucks run. Like, again, I think that's just one of the things they're going to have to embrace rather than looking at as a potentially fatal flaw. Yeah, it's an interesting point. And you know, like go look through the last 15 years of NHL history and it is unconventional to have this kind of year over year jump. Mm -hmm. Like this doesn't happen very regularly where a team goes from like just over 500 to well over 700 point percentage uh, in a single year. What's interesting to me is we have seen it, right? We have seen it. And when we've seen it, it's often been under somewhat similar circumstances, although typically it's happened a little quicker, which is rebuilding team with management that struggles to flesh out the depth of the roster is replaced 
by a management group that does a much more efficient job of filling out the depth of the roster and then the team levels up. Like, I think the best analogy, and it's one of those unsatisfying ones because of the pandemic, it doesn't give us, like, this 83-point team mm. improved to 110 points. We have to use point percentage and not because I'm an absolutist about it, but because <laughs> it's the only way. But th- this is the Florida Panthers story, right? The, yeah. The, they replace Dale Talon with Bill Zito. They bring in Verhage, Declare, Montour, like just yeah. like a bunch of different. Decent uh, Marchman. Forsling. Yeah, Marchment. Like, well, Marchment was a talent trade. Actually. All right. Well, fair enough. Um, but, uh, but yeah, a bunch of those guys. And then that sort of 56 game pandemic shortened season, they won the President's Trophy. They were the best team in hockey. Um, now, you know, it's one of those. Like that, that team went from I think a little better than the Canucks were, like five six five, to like eighty points in fifty six games, which is you know points or you know point seven two six or something. Um, that to me is like the closest analogy. And then you know they struggled in the playoffs. They replaced their coach. They go to the finals last year. I, I you know it's an interesting comparison I think to look at, just because again we don't. We don't often see like core is 23 to 25 is sort of shot in the foot by a lack of a supporting cast. And then it all clicks Mm -hmm. the way it has for the Canucks this season to the point where depth is like one of the big strengths of this team. Um, You know, it's a it's a very unconventional path. And, you know, I, I I don't know what you draw from that in terms of like key lessons on how to proceed. Like, you know, I, I think one thing that the Panthers did that I think you want to avoid is they went all in that one year, right? With Sherratt and, and Giroux, Um, you know, and some of those trades have hurt them. Those, those fits were bad. Um, You know, the Canucks have already traded a first in Brustevich, but um, you know, I, 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 my view of the Lindholm deal, while there's some risk inherent in it, and I do think the Canucks traded a piece who has star potential in Brustevich in the deal, um, you know, it, it feels more acceptable to me, right, than the Giroux did, deal did. And that's not revisionist history, as you'll, as you'll remember. Like, I hated that deal the moment I saw it. <laughs> um, I felt totally differently about the Lindholm deal. But, you know, as, as we throw around names like Ristolainen and Phil Kessel and, and stuff like that, like, you know, I, there, there's caution is still mm-hmm. – some caution is still warranted. You definitely that, – that's like the only real applicable lesson, I think, from the last time we saw – um, you know, a team go from mid to hero as quickly as the Canucks have this season. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because my part of my argument originally for maybe you should go for it is that this is an atypical path, and it's not mm. you can't you can't afford to look at this as hey, this is going to be a great chance for this team to get playoff experience, right? Because the way this team has been built and the shape of this roster and the salary cap and all of that is, that's not enough. You need to find a way to get more out of this year or at least put yourself in a position to get more out of this year. This is not your prototypical young team getting a first taste uh, of Stanley Cup playoff experience that you hope will pay off for them down the road. But I also, like, but, you know, that pushes you to go for it, but it, I think it's fair to at least have, I don't want to say necessarily major concerns, but as you said, it's just kind of a unique situation, right? And maybe it, maybe there's this scenario of, hey, they're, they're here for the first time and they don't know to be, to feel that pressure, right? Like it works in their favor or whatever the case is. But I, I do think it's an interesting thing to kind of try to wrap our heads around about how the, the speed of this turnaround is going to affect this team once they reach the playoffs. Now, on an individual level, 
I mean, there are plenty of guys with playoff experience on this team, right? Like Ian Cole has played over 100 playoff games. You know, Elias Lindholm's played in a bunch of playoff games. Teddy Bluger, JT Miller, go down the list, right? It's not as if it's this this team full of guys. Tyler Myers, guys who have never sniffed um, the playoffs. They've just never done it together. The other thing I will say to this point, now, I think the further we get from the bubble, the kind of the less weight it holds in people's minds. But let's not forget, I mean, Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes, not to mention Thatcher Demko, were all phenomenal in that environment. And yes, is it different than being in a packed Rogers arena or being on the road in front of an extraordinarily hostile uh, crowd? Yeah, sure, it is different. I'm, of, of course, I'm willing to admit that. But it was still NHL playoff hockey. And those guys absolutely thrived. And they're all better as players now. So I can get the concern about, wow, is this too fast? Are they really going to be ready to go on a deep run? But those guys, your absolute best players, the only thing they've had that was anything close to this in the NHL, they absolutely thrived in that scenario as well. Yeah, personally, I have zero concerns about like the ability of this core group to bring it when the stakes are highest, right? I, I mean, the like the concerns and and uh, sorry concerns might be too much like the things that we haven't seen from this group you know cuz i think you're right we've seen demco elevate mm-hmm. we've seen petterson elevate we've seen hughes elevate um you know miller was good in that in that stanley cup fi- uh, playoff run and was like very seriously hurt like had mm. a he was playing very hurt in that that playoff i still think he was point per game um but there are elements that we still haven't seen. Like, let me give you an example. One thing we've never seen, even though we've seen him elevate in the postseason, right? We've never seen Demko hold down a starter's workload yep. and go into the playoffs, right? Like, we've never seen him play game 70, game 71, game 72, which, you know, he'll get to even if he tops out at 58 games by the second round. Um, like, that's the sort of stuff that we haven't seen, right? The, the bubble... Like, we've seen these players level up when the chips are down in the playoffs and when playoff hockey's being played with that level of intensity. But doing it on the back of a season in which you've played 82 games right away without, like, six months off or four months off or whatever it was, that is different. Um, So, you know, there's still going to be new challenges here, but I don't see, like, I'm very confident. That, for example, Elias Pettersson is clutch. Right? Mm. Like, I'm very confident that uh, Quinn Hughes is going to be a game breaker no matter what. Yeah. Um, but, but I, you know, there's the, those little bits, those little, like, niggles of uh, uncertainty that sort of hover around a group that just hasn't done it. There's nothing they can do to address that until they get there. You know, it's like mm-hmm. it's the least fair thing to lob at a, at a team like this because – well, what can you do? Like, there's there's no yeah. control over what's happened in the past. It's just about what's in front of you. And that's sort of, too, where I think the, you know, sweet spot that Rick Tockett was talking about, that, you know, the what's up next mentality while also managing to enjoy and try to develop a sense of swagger and belief as a group, like, that delicate balance to me is an interesting one to monitor. Uh, over the balance of this season. And the thing is, as you said, one, like there's nothing they can do about it until they actually get there. And even if you do think, you know, I don't buy, I don't fully buy or I have concerns that one team can have this type of turnaround and then and then really legitimately push for the Stanley Cup in one year, 
I mean, what, you're going to punch on a playoffs? Like, this is a playoff opportunity. This is a playoff opportunity with Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson in their primes, with Thatcher Demko having a Vesna-caliber season, with JT Miller at 30 still producing, still being an elite player for you. I, I just don't see how you can let concern about, you know, I can't – like, it's one thing I get looking for parallels in NHL history, but there's no one – route to winning a Stanley Cup, right? Like somebody texts in, uh, Mark texted in, where's the example of a big regular season points increase and playoff success all in one year? It seems like a long shot. I mean, winning the Stanley Cup is inherently a long shot thing. You know what I mean? Like I know there's been teams in recent years where going in, Dom's model has really, really liked their chances. They've been that type of elite team. I get that. But I think you also have to be – you can't be completely bound to the paths that other teams have taken, right? There's always going to be unique things that happen. There's always going to be unique situations. And I ultimately just think the team has too much talent right now. Yeah, maybe maybe we will get negative answers to some of these questions that you're asking, and the team won't be able to go on a long playoff run. But I don't think that uncertainty would justify, again, as I said, like punting or not giving it your all to try to maximize their chances when that, the number of factors you have that are working in your favor right now. Oh, for sure. It's just about doing it as responsibly as yes. possible. And I think the Lindholm deal was doing, you know, that. qualifies. Yeah. By the way, Rick Tockett really likes Elias Lindholm as a player, huh? <laughs> like, is the, oh, yeah. The praise for his hockey IQ has been really, really fascinating to hear i don't know that we've heard that much discussion on the idea of like hockey iq from rick tockett until elias lindholm arrived and you can tell he is just i mean you saw it in his usage in that carolina game and i'm sure there's a good chance we'll see it again tonight against another good team in boston but man rick tockett just seems over the moon to have this guy uh in the lineup right now i'd expect heavy usage again right and and we'll see if there's a little more offense five on five you know that to me was the one part that was absent. Maybe it's context mm -hmm. of the Hurricanes, but this is another stiff test. So, you know, that that to me, it's like the offensive chemistry was the only thing lacking in his debut. Everything else was there and there with exclamation marks, right? The reliability, the, the shorthanded play, the face-off winning. I mean, everything you could have wanted, everything we talked about that made Lindholm such an ideal fit for this club was like laid plain, obvious, couldn't miss it if you were watching the game, but, but that next layer, right? That offensive push, yeah. that help driving, that's sort of what I'm going to be looking for now. And, and that, even that is a testament to the high bar that Lindholm set with a dream debut. Yeah. And you can tell his coach is absolutely thrilled to have him in the lineup. Uh, we will see. We'll see over the next month or so. We heard the Phil Kessel name. We heard the Rasmus Ristolainen name out there. We'll see what else uh, the Canucks might do to try to help out their coach ahead of the trade deadline on March 8th. All right. As you know, Canucks game day tonight. They're taking on the Bruins at 4 o'clock. Two top teams in the NHL going at it in Boston. A lot of eyes on the in, in around the league are going to be on this game, watching this one. Should be a ton of fun. Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah with Canucks Central are up next. They'll have the postgame. Batch and Randeep will have the call at 4 o'clock. We will be back tomorrow on a Friday edition of the show to break it all down. Enjoy the game. Thanks for listening. Keep it right here on Sportsnet 650.